Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to our uh, midweek Lent service. Uh, go ahead and stand with me, and we'll begin worshiping. Lord Almighty, grant us a quiet night and peace at the last. Amen. Amen. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to herald your love in the morning, your truth at the close of the day. Remain standing for the hymn. Gracious God, I confess that I have sinned against you this day. Some of my sin I know, the thoughts and words and deeds of which I am ashamed, but some is known only to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, I ask forgiveness. Deliver and restore me that I may rest in peace. By the mercy of God, we're redeemed by Jesus Christ, and in him we are forgiven. We rest now in his peace and rise in the morning to serve him. Amen. You may be seated. The Old Testament reading from this past Sunday is the story of the bronze serpent from uh, Numbers 21. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. 
and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. And so Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Epistle reading is from 1 Corinthians 10. Paul's talking about um, Israel's journeys through the wilderness. I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Don't be idolaters as some of them were. As it's written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation is overtaking you that's not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape, that you may be able to endure it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
So in uh, John chapter 3, which was the gospel reading for last, this past week, um, Jesus meets with Nicodemus, and uh, it's the classic, uh, you must be born again text. Uh, Jesus is trying to convince Nicodemus. So Nicodemus is one of his problems is that he believes that because he's an ethnic Jew, that he's good to go. And Jesus has to tell him, uh, no, you actually have to be born twice. It's not good enough that you were born as a Jew once. You're going to have to get born again if you want to see the kingdom of God. And um, he explains to him what that involves, uh, being born by uh, water and the Spirit has to do with uh, uh, baptism, has to do with the Holy Spirit, has to do with faith in Jesus. For uh, God so loved the world that whoever believes in him might not perish but have everlasting life. And he tells in the middle of that conversation, he makes reference to this story here of the bronze serpent being hung up on the pole. And when we, let's read this story tonight and think about it. And it'll make, I think it'll make sense to you why Jesus would refer to this story for a couple reasons. One is that uh, here's a bunch of natural-born Israelites, just like Nicodemus. And yet, it wasn't good enough. It wasn't good enough just to be ethnically related to Abraham. Uh, they also had to repent and believe. Uh, but second of all, this story of the bronze serpent contains just about everything that's in the gospel. It's all in here. So let's go back to it, if we can, in, in Numbers 21, uh, verses 4 through uh, 9. And we'll see, um, we'll see the story of salvation played out. And I just kind of want to say three things about it. Uh, in this story, you have rebellion and punishment. In this story, you also have intercession and a means of grace. And then also you have faith and salvation in this story of the bronze serpent. So first of all, let's talk about a rebellion and punishment in this story. In verses 4 through 6, they set out from Mount Hor by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. Uh, this is why the serpents get sent out to them is because their, their surface sin is just impatience. It's not that they're blaspheming God. It's not that they're murdering each other like before the flood. They're impatient. Of all the piddling sins for God to punish them for, he chooses impatience. Well, he's God, and he hates all kinds of sin, and he chooses to punish. You know, this is the one thing about God is he's not a formula, is when you look at the story of the Old Testament, you'll notice that sometimes the people sin grievously. David murders somebody and steals the man's wife, and God just pours out forgiveness and grace on them. And then sometimes they're impatient because they're hungry, and God says that's enough. He has his reasons. He's God, and he chooses when to break out the big stick and when to be merciful. Behind this uh, sin of impatience, though, is basically just rank rebellion. I mean, it looks impatience looks sort of like uh, soft and one of the lesser sins on the surface, but underneath of it is this, we're not happy with what God has given to us. We wish that we had something else. The people speak against God in verse 5 and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And then here comes the punishment. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people. Fiery serpents. That, that word fiery there has to do with not how they appear, but has to do with the result of the bite. It's a word that has to do with inflammation. So they'd be bitten by these snakes, and it would cause uh, inflammation bad enough that some of them were dying from it. And they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. 
So you have this rebellion and you have this punishment. There's different aspects to the rebellion here. Of course, it's a spiritual, right? It's a rebellion against God. They spoke against God and against Moses. This wasn't just I'm hungry, but it's a, it's a complaint against God himself, a rebellious complaint against God himself. So it's a spiritual problem. It also results in a psychological problem. Like all sin, it's basically irrational. It doesn't have a lot of sense to it. There's a fantastic line here where they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt? There's no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Well, which is it? Is there no food? They say there's no food out here, and we loathe this worthless food. It's less a complaint about the food and more a complaint against God, which results in just irrational anger against him. It's also physical, though. It's not just, it's not just internal. It's not just spiritual and psychological. It's also physical, of course. Like all sin, it results in death. Their sin's no different than ours. They complain against God, and they get bit by serpents. You and I complain against God, and eventually we're going to die. Odds are it won't be from uh, getting bit by a snake, but it could be. At some point, something's going to get you. God's going to punish our sins at some point. It's what he told us in the garden. If you rebel against me, you'll surely die. And sure enough, we all do. It could be a snake bite. It could be a car wreck. It could be cancer. It could be uh, drooling ourselves to death in a nursing home. But one way or the other, God's going to get us in the end. There are physical ramifications to our rebellion against him. There's psychological ramifications, an inherent irrationality that we're pretty comfortable living in as humans, a spiritual darkness that rebels against God and against the people that he puts in our lives. There's also a physical ramification. However, a death. And other things, too, that I'm not going to get into because it's too depressing. Let's get to the a solution. There's intercession and there's a means of grace in verse 7. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against you. So they don't come to him and say, we're sorry, we should have been more patient. They actually repent for the core sin. We've spoken against God and we've spoken against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who's bitten when he sees it shall live. So God provides for them an intercessor. We all have this sense, don't we? I mean, don't you have this sense that there are people that are closer to God than me, and if I want access to God, I should go to them and ask them. Uh, we all have people in our lives who are prayer warriors. Who We know that when we pray, sometimes it's a struggle. For all of us it is too, but there's people that we know who are really powerful at praying. And so we go to them because we crave this intercessor. You go to somebody like this, though, and, and they know that they need an intercessor. There's no like perfect prayer warrior. There's no one person here in this room that, when you speak, God always grants you what you always have this sense that God is right there present. Moses was like that for them. I mean, he wasn't perfect. Moses sins too. Moses himself needs an intercessor. Of course, we know that the intercessor that they crave, the, inter, the, the, the person that they can go to and say, can you go to God for us, is actually Jesus of Nazareth. God provides Jesus as an intercessor for us. God also provides a means of grace. What I mean by means of grace is God provides a way to give us the grace that we need. Always. That's an interesting question in, in, in the Christian life, isn't it? Oh, I think it is. There's Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. How does that get to me? How does, there, how does the power from that come to me? And the answer in the Bible is always a means of grace. And the means of grace is always physical. It's spiritual, certainly, but it's also physical. 
Why is that? Well, because their problems are spiritual and physical. Their problems are spiritual, psychological, and physical. They don't just need their sins forgiven. They need a way to be cured from these deadly snake bites. You, don't, you need your sins forgiven. That's true. You and I need our sins forgiven. But we also have physical pain. We also have problem with physical people. We also are all going to die. We are slowly even now dying a physical death. We need somebody to take care of that too. It's a bad enlightenment notion that you, the physical stuff's not important. What you really need is a spiritual relationship with Jesus. Of course you need a spiritual relationship with Jesus. But Jesus didn't become a human being just to have a spiritual relationship with you. Jesus took on a body so he could have a physical relationship with you. And when God gives himself to us, when God, gets a, when God creates a pathway to get his grace to us, he always does it physically. Starts and ends with the, it's, it's, the author and finisher is, of course, the God-man, Jesus. But sometimes he gives us bronze snakes. Now, this text is probably weird for some of you. How is it that just looking at this bronze snake can cure their sickness? And why is there not some sort of explanation for, well, how does that work? Nobody asks, at least in the story, nobody asked. Moses just says, I'm going to tack this bronze snake up to this pole here. And if you get bit, all you have to do is look at it. And then they do. They look at it and they're cured. And nobody says, hey, wait a minute. That's weird. How does that work? We struggle with this. They didn't struggle with it. They were completely comfortable with God saying, I'm going to figure out a physical means of grace to get my forgiveness to you, to get my healing to you. We struggle with it, though, because, again, we're enlightenment people. We believe that the spirit is important, and the body and the physical world is unimportant. And that's just not the case. Like I said, sometimes God gives us bronze snakes. Why does he do this? Because we need it. Because our souls are messed up, and our bodies are messed up. What is it? How does God do this? Uh, the, 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 I'm going to come back to the bronze snake in just a second. For me and you, though, it's his word and the sacraments. Like, this is physical. This book is physical. God's word comes to us printed on a page. And you don't ever want to, you know, to turn the actual page into an idol, but the fact is, is that the word of God doesn't come to you unless it comes physically. Sometimes it's in book form as you sit and read it. Sometimes it's in audio book form as you're driving to work and you listen to somebody read the Bible on uh, uh, your headphones. Sometimes it's out loud. Um, I just read the Bible to you a minute ago, and my voice went into the air, and there were vibrations that went into your ear and physically vibrated your eardrum. God uses physical things to get his grace to us. The sacraments are the same way. This, is, this, this bronze serpent is in some ways, it's a kind of a sacrament. It's a physical connection to them in Jesus that provides forgiveness of sins. How is it like a sacrament? Well, it's like poisonous snakes, but it's not poisonous. It's bronze. It's hung up like a dead snake, a reminder that what, what they once were afraid of, what once was killing them, now has the power to heal them. This is its connection to Jesus. Jesus is like us. He was made in the likeness of sinful flesh, but he wasn't sinful. His body hung on a tree because of our sins is a reminder that one, what once could kill us, our sins, has now been put to death on him. And in fact, by looking at him, we're cured. This is one of the things that makes a sacrament a sacrament is its connection to Jesus. The other is it's a command from God. Look at this snake and live makes it a sacrament. Now, this sacrament has a time stamp on it. 
They weren't to get, you know, we don't have that bronze snake anymore. In fact, are you guys familiar with this story about the bronze snake? So they had the bronze snake and they looked at it and they lived, but they held on to it too, even though God didn't tell them to do that. And it's, uh, hold on a second, I got to do some quick math in my head. It's about 600 years. No, no, it's about 700 years that they hold on to this snake until King Hezekiah finds it and says, enough offering incense to this snake in 2 Kings 18.4. And he takes it and he hacks it up to pieces with an axe because it no longer was connected to God's promise. He, he had not told them in 2 Kings, keep on you know, looking at this snake. That was a one-time thing here in the wilderness. Our sacraments too have a time stamp on them. You will not be celebrating the Lord's Supper and we will not be baptizing into eternity. Right? As, uh, as often as you eat and drink of this bread and was, I'm going to misquote it. As long as you, as often as you eat and drink this bread and this cup, you uh, proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Until he comes. There's a time stamp on it. It's temporary because the bread and the wine, Jesus binds himself powerfully to the bread and wine, but someday we'll see him face to face and we will no longer need it. Meanwhile, right now, we do need it because we're physical beings who have physical sins and we have a physical death facing each and every one of us. And so we need God to give us these signs. Uh, faith and salvation. Let's move on to that. Um, intercession and means of grace results in faith and salvation. Some people, like, can, if I can go back real quick to the, uh, to the sacrament thing. So some people wonder to, I, I just want to say this real quick before we move on. How is it, it seems weird to say that Jesus binds himself to bread and wine. How can you Lutherans believe that Jesus is in the bread and the wine? And the answer, of course, is it's, it's never a simple two-sentence answer. But we need physical salvation. We need physical salvation. But the, and the second one is, is because God says it. Right? It's, it. it's tied up with God's command. God, God could have bound himself to anything. But he chose to bind himself to bread and wine. He says... As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you preach the Lord's death. You preach the gospel. The gospel is contained in this. Um, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't say repent and make the sign of the cross for the forgiveness of sins. He doesn't say repent and go forward and pray the sinner's prayer for the forgiveness of sins. And all those things are fine. It's, it's, it's good to go forward. The sign of the cross, too, making the sign of the cross on yourself, that's totally fine. It's kind of like the bronze snake. It's a pointer to Jesus. It can remind you of your baptism. It's not commanded, though, like the bronze snake anymore. It's not commanded, so you can either do it or not do it. It's up to you. If it helps you to have that physical reminder that I'm baptized in the name of Jesus, coming forward and praying, if that helps you, that's fine. You know what's commanded, though, is baptism and Holy Communion and the preaching and reading of God's Word. Anyway, uh, on to the faith and salvation, and we'll wrap this up. What the intercession and the means of grace result in is just good stuff. This is the verse that's, you know, John 3.14, we read this the other day. Jesus explaining to Nicodemus um, what salvation, what the new birth is about. And he says to him, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. I'm going to be what the bronze serpent was in that story. Now, what's interesting about that phrase is, so uh, as the Son of Man was lifted up, as the, as, as, uh, Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him might not perish but have eternal life. We're saved by faith. It's about, it's, it's about belief, right? Jesus is going to get hung up on the pole so that whoever believes in him. 
But if you go back to the Numbers 21 story, it doesn't say believe. It actually just uses the word look. Look at verse 9 again. Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is because Moses said in verse 8, whoever's bitten, when he sees the bronze serpent, shall live. Jesus calls it faith. The Numbers story calls it just looking. And that's what Jesus means. You understand? That's what Jesus means by faith is looking at Jesus. And this is a common theme in the Bible that faith is just essentially looking. Isaiah 45:22 says, and this is the King James translation, look unto me, look unto me and be saved all the ends of the earth for I am God and there is none other. Look to me. That's what God says. You want to be saved? Look to me. Hebrews 12:2, I quoted this in church uh, recently. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Faith is looking to Jesus. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you see the connection between Numbers 21, verse 8 and 9, and John 3, 14? What is faith in Jesus? Faith in Jesus is just looking. Just looking at Jesus. Just like they, all they had to do was look at the snake. They didn't have to do anything else. Moses doesn't say, look at it, but I really want you to be reciting the Ten Commandments in your head while you look at it. Or look at it and you really, really have to want the snake to rescue you. Or look at it and you really have to have faith in deep theological truths. He just says, look at it. Whoever sees it lives. A lot of us have this, a lot of us have this question sometimes. Do I really believe in Jesus? Do I really have real saving faith? And the thing is, is that we're looking at the wrong thing. We're looking at ourselves. Whenever we ask ourselves that question, we're examining ourselves to see, do I have faith? And that's not going to save you. Nothing inside of yourself, no amount of knowledge of theology that you have, no amount of desire that Jesus will save you, no amount of like, really, I'm really trusting this morning. I'm really leaning on the everlasting arms. None of that's actually going to save you. You know what's going to save you? Just looking at Jesus. Looking is not grasping the depths of the theological riches of the doctrine of justification. Oh, as important as that is, that's not what looking is. Looking is not really, really thinking it's true with no doubts. Nobody ever does that anyway. It's impossible to have no doubts as, as a fallen Christian, as a fallen human being. Looking isn't really, really wanting it to be true. Looking is just looking. It's all you have to do. And some of you are going to say, well, what does it mean to look? And I'm going to say, okay, stop. You're making it too hard. Looking is just, it's all, just look. Look at Jesus. That's all you have to do. Well, it can't be that easy, right? I mean, I can't just be like, okay, I'm going to look at Jesus. I'm just going to look to Jesus. Yes, it's that easy. There's nothing more than that. It's not the end of it, of course. He's the author and finisher of our faith. There's lots of learning to trust him. There's lots of learning deep theological truths. There's lots of emotions that get stirred up, powerful emotions, good emotions, and bad emotions when you come to know Jesus better. But at its heart, it's nothing more than just looking at him. So just look at him. Stand with me and let's pray. Hear my prayer, O Lord. Listen to my cry. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings. In righteousness I shall see you. When I awake, your presence will give me joy. Be present, merciful God, and protect us through the hours of this night so that we who are wearied by the changes and chances of life may find our rest in you. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.
taught by our Lord and trusting His promises, we are bold to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be Thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit bless you and keep you. Amen. Amen.